We have a champion. Spaniard Juan Mir is in the record books as a MotoGP World Champion and Suzuki have taken the team title and are on the cusp of the manufacturer's title too with one race to go in 2020. Welcome to the Race MotoGP podcast. Toby Moody, Simon Patterson here talking through the very latest MotoGP analysis. 2020 champion Mir has been nothing but consistent all year, less for struggling at a wet Le Mans. He rode sensibly and safe at Valencia 2 to wrap up the title, but at all the other dry races, the worst place he finished was at it was in a fifth. And I think that says it all for his focus, his drive and consistency. He's had the most podiums than anyone else. For Suzuki to take this title in their fifth year since being reborn into MotoGP after a break has given massive hope to many other motorcycle manufacturers that with the right people you can enter, win and take the spoils for there are many others in the paddock with more money who don't have a hit rate as good as Suzuki right now. Keyboard Warriors have said that it's a hollow championship without the reigning world champion Marc Marquez, but for me, you have to finish as many races as possible, be sensible, think it through, and take the points. I have a saying, you only get points on one lap. And also, the race actually starts on Friday morning in free practice. And that's exactly what Mir and Suzuki have done. The object of the exercise ultimately is to score more points than anyone else. There is no hero championship. Simon Patterson joins me. You felt that Mia would do it. I hate the word, but are you feeling slightly smug now or <laughs> proud about your <laughs> prediction, Simon? <sighs> um, I wasn't the first to call it, so I'm not going to be too smug about it. But he, he just looked special from early on in this year. He he had those first few rounds where things didn't quite go right and he made a silly mistake and then he got wiped out and it looked like the lead was a bit much and and you know, like like the championship was kind of off the cards. And then he just got his act together, started looking really, really impressive. Obviously, we're always talking to people in the team. We're talking to people around him, getting a feel for what's going on in the garage. They were immediately super confident again whenever they saw what he was doing. And, uh, you know, he, he had the look of a champion from very early on in this season and a year whenever everyone else was on a roller coaster. It's been compared this season to 2006 and Nicky Hayden. Nicky Hayden only won two Grand Prix in that championship year. There were more races in 2006 than the 14 that we're going to have in, in 2020. It's got that same kind of feel to me. Nicky was always just there. Get the points, get the points. It is, it is very much a carbon copy of those two seasons uh, back to back. I thought when you were calling Mia that Davizioso would do it. Why did I say that? Because he has a huge amount more experience. And with Ducati's budgets and their experience, I thought that they'd do it as well. But I was absolutely 180 degrees wrong. Uh, not only did Ducati go backwards, but Suzuki, arguably Simon, went a level up. Yeah, they found something a little bit more special. They, they, they just, they 
fully understand that team seems to understand their motorcycle like no other team I've ever experienced. They know every single thing that bike is capable of. They know where all the limits are. They know where all the weaknesses are. They absolutely know where all the strengths are. You know, you've got Ducati who are trying to solve a rear tire problem where their bike has been thrown out of shape by, by Michelin bringing that new rear tire and they don't know what to do. Whereas Suzuki just already know instinctively what the bike's capable of, what they have to do to fix problems. Bum, 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 bum. Everything's good. Back to normal. It's a, uh, it's a huge testament to the team as well as the rider. And, and, you know, it's not even mere side of the garage. It's Rins's side of the garage. It's Tom McCain and Sylvain Cantoli in the test team. It's the engineers back in Hamamatsu. It's, uh, it's the whole thing, you know, they, they've just got a very, very unusual working order that seems to make everything gel really well, makes everyone able to understand what everyone else is doing. It, you know, it worked. People who win championships, they tend to have what I have in my head, which is, yeah, there's the pie chart, but there's always one bigger th- one part of the pie chart that's bigger. Maybe it's the bike, maybe it's the rider. Maybe it's the engine. Maybe they've got a tire advantage when there was a tire war. That's not happening at the moment. But I can't pick out the strongest part of this of this of this season for Suzuki and for Mir. Please, I'm not bashing him. I don't think he's an ordinary rider. He is he is he's a world champion. But there's nothing that really stands out. Does it to you? No, if there was one word to pick how Suzuki is balanced between European and Japanese, to pick how the bike is balanced between acceleration and cornering, to pick how Mir's riding style is balanced between aggressive and control, the one word that just rounds up everything Suzuki have done this year is neutral. They've got the sweet spot in every regard. Everything they do just seems balanced. It just seems like they're right where they need to be. You've got other teams who are, you've got Aprilia, which is run by Italians, and it's a complete mess in the garage sometimes. You've got Yamaha, which is run by Japanese engineers, and the engineers are always right, and the riders can't fix everything. You've got Suzuki, which is half run by Italians, half run by Japanese, right in the sweet spot. You've got the Yamaha that can go around corners perfectly, but has no straight line speed. You've got the Ducati that is long and low and fast, but can't turn. You've got the Suzuki can do both of those things quite well. Neither of them perfectly, but both quite well. You know, they've just managed to hit this perfectly balanced spot this year. And, um, you know, looking back in hindsight at how well that team's built, what they told us back in Sepang at the start of the year, it's actually not really any surprise that they won a championship. Um, I was talking to a journalist the other day, a friend of mine called Manuel Pacino, Spanish journal, who interviewed Danny Pedroza after the Sepang test at the start of this season back in February. And Pedroza told him then, Suzuki are going to be world champion this year and they don't even know it yet. There's one team that you didn't mention there. <laughs> You've got Honda, who have more data than... I don't know, a mission a, a mission to Mars. Exactly. A mission to Mars. Yeah. Um, and yet what we've discovered now, their pie chart over the last few years was 99% Mark Marquez. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, 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 they've managed to claw that back a little bit by discovering that 
you know, whenever you actually pay attention to your writers and help them develop, it turns out they can be quite good, Takanakagami. But uh, because they've been so hyper-focused on one writer instead of three writers or four writers, that's just, you know, it's take, it took them half a season to realize that. And that's why they're fifth out of six in the Constructors World Championship. Coming back to the Valencia 2 race, the race was faster than the weekend before by about, give or take, half a second a lap. But Suzuki, Mir, they played it safe over the, the, the race. They were seventh eventually. But ironically, Simon, actually faster to the finish line than his race winning pace of the weekend before. Did they say they played it safe? Did he just bank it and he'll be unleashed again this weekend in Portugal? He admitted afterwards that it was the hardest race of the year just because of the pressure and the stress and the tension going into it. Because you know he, he made an excellent point post-race. In a normal year, you turn up to a circuit, you're under a huge amount of stress for four days, you practice, you qualify, you race, you win, you go home, and you decompress, you switch off, you relax. This year, you do the four days at the circuit, then you go home and you spend three days panicking about, am I going to pass my COVID-19 test on Tuesday so that I can back into the paddock next week? There is no switching off this year. These triple headers have been... I used to think that doing you know, the, the flyaway triple headers where everyone was away from home for three weeks in the far side of the world and they were stressed. They're nothing compared to this year. And it feels like every one of them has got exponentially harder. The reason that the triple header flyways in Asia didn't don't feel so bad is that you only leave home once and you're so far away, your brain turns off. That's my take on it. When you're in Europe for triple headers... Yes. And you always get a few days in the beach in St Kilda yeah. in between. Or... When you're in Europe for triple headers... You think you can go home because you're actually only an hour and a half flight away or an hour for some people or even yeah. less for others. Or you can drive home. Yeah. It's it's very difficult. But the race itself, um, I texted Spalders halfway through the race. I said, not a thriller, is it? And then it came alive. <laughs> and then it all blew up in the and last And then it lap. came alive. And the <laughs> only thing that I was shouting at the television at the beginning of that last lap between Morbidelli and Miller was Valencia 2002. Barros that year got given a V5 four-stroke Honda for the last four races. He won on his debut at Mategi. He had a load of podiums in between, and then he ended up by winning on that last lap against Valentino Rossi's similar Repsol Honda V5. It was one of the best races I've ever commented, laps I've ever commentated on. And there it was. It was happening again. I forget who overtook who, <laughs> how many times, but a great victory by Morbidelli. Jack Miller said, Simon, uh, you know, I was going to ride off into the sunset. Oh dear. <laughs> that didn't happen. What was his what was his what was his reason? I think uh Frankie actually hit the nail on the head rather than Jack. Um Jack was on a medium front tire, Frankie was on a hard front tire, he just had a little bit more braking stability. Whenever it comes to those last lap dives up the inside of each other, Frankie just had a little bit more feel from the front, a little bit more confidence. And he really, really, really wanted that. Great racing. Just fantastic racing on a day of Absolutely. motorsport where we saw uh, Lewis Hamilton wrapping up seven world titles. And as Valentino later said in the evening, ah, he's now level with me. 
<laughs> I thought that was quite a good line that from Valentino. Just reminding yeah. people, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm still. St- yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and by I'm the way, I had there. those seven yeah. quite some time ago. But anyway, <laughs> great racing. Apollos Bargaro, what an end to the season. Uh, third position for him in Valencia 2. That's three podiums and a fourth from the last five Grand Prix. Had a pole position. But ironically, the podiums have have meant he's never looked so disappointed. It's been a tough one in the fourth year of the KTM project. They had a third at Valencia two years ago. He's leaving KTM at the end of this week before he goes to Repsol Honda. Yeah. He's, he's he's got to be gloves off. He, he I almost feel as if he the wind's to. out of his sails now. He I, he doesn't know what he needs to do to try and win. Yeah, he has. I, I think no one knows to, what to expect to Portugal. Um, no one knows what sort of a race we're going to get. What bikes it's going to you know who's going to favour. And uh, and I think because of that, Paul Paul saw this weekend as his last great hope. Let's be honest. He loves Valencia. The KTM goes well here. They've done more miles around this circuit than any other circuit. He was coming here hoping that it would all click and he would be able to leave with that KTM win. Because, you know, let's be honest, it's got a smart. All the time and effort he put into the project and the other guys have won twice. M- much as, much as you know, it must have been very, very bittersweet yesterday in the Suzuki garage for Alex Rins watching Mir lift a title in his second year as Rins finishes year four, where he's had a tough time. and But Rins has got time to change that. Rins will sleep well yes, at night knowing true. he's got time. He's got age on his side. The team are committed to him. He's got time and he knows where he can hopefully see opportunities to beat Mir. Whereas this thing with Paul at KTM, it's only got another yeah. seven days to go. There's a deadline. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when yeah, it comes yeah. to big, big pressure, well, let's see. Let's see. Uh, yeah, it not only smarts that Paul hasn't had that victory, but of course, as you say, the other Binder's had a victory and so has Miguel Oliveira. Don't let us forget that Miguel Oliveira got given the keys to a brand new M4 when he won the race. And I think Paul's bonus... After taking his victory at Paul's expense. And Paul's bonus, I think, is a KTM crossbow. (laughs) I think I'd rather have the crossbow. (laughs) Yeah, one's got got leather and aircon and the other one doesn't. So there you go. This is true. This is true. Um... Right, where do we go now? Let's pick out another man who was a championship contender throughout this 2020 MotoGP season, uh, Fabio Quattararo. The, well, he's completely fallen apart. Um, I know he was the man of the moment. He'd won the first two Grand Prix at the beginning of the season, which was late July now. For me, I did always say he won't win the championship. It just doesn't feel right for me, but I didn't foresee that he would get, for example, 17 points out of the last five Grand Prix when there were 125 on the table. It's completely fallen apart. What's the reason? I don't quite know, to be honest. Um, Obviously, he's in a very different year this year from last year. Last year, he was the underdog. He had no pressure. He was having fun on the bike and he was able to ride his heart out. This year, you know, he, those double wins at the start of the year made him the favourite. They put all the pressure on him and, and he had to cope with that. Combined with, uh, well, I was going to say combined with a difficult to ride Yamaha. 
Um, we know that the Yamaha has its problems. We know that there, you know, there are definitely big issues with that bike in how it does certain things. But can I just interrupt? They've had seven victories. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was about to say. It's become a crutch that oh, the Yamaha's hard to ride is now the crutch that Morbidelli and and Vinales use whenever things aren't going their way. Everything's always blamed on the bike whenever they have a bad weekend. And you just can't do that. That's just not how it works. Mir has not once this year said, oh, the bike wasn't good enough to win today. Frankly, the problem that Vinales and Quattararo has is they're complaining about the Yamaha being crap yesterday. Well, one of them won the race. Yeah, yeah. And I know it's last year's bike and it's a bit different, but it's still the same DNA. Because if it wasn't the same DNA, Vinales wouldn't be complaining every year about the bikes having the same issues. You know, this is the bike that had the same problems he was complaining about yesterday, 12 months ago, according to him. All riders come in the garage and say, it is crap. All riders do that, but the clever ones do it when the door's shut and when nobody's <laughs> outside the hallowed turf of your garage is listening you've got to say you can't lose your temper exactly. you can't use your helmet as a bowling ball through the back of the garage and you certainly can't say it's effing this or effing that that zarko did on live television and got caught <laughs> and then was straight into the boss's office um yes so so mia will have said I'm not having a go at you. Mia will have said that it's rubbish yeah, or whatever yeah. because of it's course, emotion. Of course, but he hasn't it, told it, me it's that. It's emotion. It's, it, it, they, they are risking their lives. It, it, it is adrenaline. It is everything. But the wherewithal and the maturity from some to keep their mouths shut is very, very apparent at the moment. Uh, yeah. And, and not only that, I mean, correcting myself here, Yamaha won those seven races only one in the works team <laughs> yeah you have to wonder if yamaha's policy of signing up riders before the season starts for two years in the future is really something they need to be looking at for the future because let's be honest would you have signed vinales and quadraro now haven't seen what they were capable of i'd sign quadraro because he's won yeah, three grand prix yeah but this is Vinales' second contract extension, and he's given the same feedback as he was given in 17. Now, either there's something very, very badly wrong in Iwata, or he no, doesn't it, really no, know what he's complaining about. You, I can see your point, but also, we did have an odd season this year. Remember that we... Yeah, yeah, of course. As, as you know, we started, what, late, late July. We are used to getting contract uh, announcements Mugello early June Barcelona mid-June Assen late June it is an odd season managers are pushy they're very pushy teams want, don't want to be left with nobody to ride their bike a la Repsol Honda this time last year they don't want to be left with nobody to dance with they don't want to miss all the buses all of those one-liners it's a it's a it's an unwinnable balancing act. But don't forget, whenever Yamaha signed up these two riders, they didn't know we were going to have an odd season. They were signed before we went testing in Sepang. Okay. Right. Okay. I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. <laughs> you know, that's that's the thing. It's I, I get I get you know, I get what Suzuki did signing Rins and Mir in April, whenever we were sitting at home 
looking at our watches and hoping the calendar would land in the post. But Yamaha signed all these guys up before there was any problems, before there was even a hint that we weren't going to have a usual year. And one of the things that has been consistent this year in a year that has been completely topsy-turvy has been Yamaha riders' feedback. Mm-hmm. And, and and talking about time of year to sign people, Casey Stoner was signed at the end of 2006, at the end of October, and he was the third choice. Won the title the next yeah. year with 10 Grand Prix victories. Exactly. So uh, exactly. It, it is a topsy-turvy thing. <laughs> it is a topsy-turvy thing. <laughs> Let's keep on the Yamaha thread, shall we? Uh, Cal Crutchlow, he's going to be standing back from MotoGP Racing. He's going to be a Yamaha test rider next year, 2021 onwards. Lorenzo, outgoing Yamaha test rider, poor guy, he hardly got his leg over the thing, had a dig at Yamaha for taking Crutchlow. He said, Yamaha, uh, somebody tweeted Lorenzo and said, Yamaha not using you, a five times world champion to their full advantage, is like a prospector striking gold, but ignoring it to look for coal. Now, obviously, that person is a Lorenzo fan. We're all human. We all wave a flag for people that you want to. But Lorenzo retweeted it with a comment and said, correct, it's like exchanging gold for bronze. Was that a bit of a bombshell in the paddock? If I could say that about social media, was that a bit of a a thing? I don't think anyone is surprised anymore whenever Jorge says slightly controversial things on social media. You know, it's the third dig he's had at a rival this week. <laughs> so uh, there was previous with Davizioso and with Miller. So it's just, he's a very open guy. He says what he thinks. Um, but I would argue that that one has spectacularly backfired on him because... Uh, reputations and history would suggest that Cal Crutchlow is going to be a a better fit, let's say. As I said, they've won seven races this year, and with Crutchlow jumping on it, they have made they've put their line in the sand of Yamaha to say, right, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And the guy has been up there and around about barring the odd injury in 2020. So let, let's see. I mean, Lorenzo's outgoing r- competitive season was just one beyond forgetful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Lorenzo retired and then did what I think all of us would do if we'd spent 16 years in a diet he went and ate lots of burgers and steaks and drank lots of champagne and gin. And, and you know, admittedly turned up the start of this year a little bit out of shape, which is fair, and a little bit bike on fit, a lot bike on fit, because he hadn't rode a motorbike and he is someone that needs to be riding a motorbike to be fast on a motorbike. Cal Crutchlow has gone into semi-retirement, which, as far as he's concerned, just gives him more time to cycle. So he's going to turn up to testing fitter than he turns up to races right now because he's going to be doing, you know, five or 600 kilometers a week in a push bike. And Cal generally goes four or five months every year without riding a motorbike anyway because he does not touch a motorbike when he's not riding a MotoGP bike. So, you know, they've got someone in Cal that if nothing else, they know will turn up to every race fit, jump on a bike, do five laps and be at race pace. I heard that the reason that Cal was actually stepping down from MotoGP full-time racing to be a uh, to be a test rider is that he doesn't have to do a press debrief with you, Simon. 
<laughs> Cal loves his prestige with me. That's the only thing I can assume anyway, because he loves talking to me so much. You want to see the amount of messages I get from him whenever he's bored in the motorhome on a Sunday evening. Stop it. Stop it. Anyway, no, let, let's just um, be serious. Here is a guy who, on behalf of, of Great Britain, has won three MotoGP races, I mean, spectacular Grand Prix victories as well. You know, won a premier class Grand Prix for the first time since since Barry Sheen. And he's a fighter. He is a hero. He is a bit gobby. That's why we like him. He'd be a viprous television pundit on the sport. And it's a shame to see him stand down. But he's had his fair share of injuries. I mean, that Yamaha crash he had at Silverstone on the Tech 3 Yamaha at Abbey terrifying uh, you know his arm pumps yeah. is this is that um the philip island broken ankle which was far worse even than i think most people realize correct he he, he can stand down he's hopefully earned well not my business none of any of our business but hopefully he's, he's earned well and he's got a lovely family do you know what i'll still get a buzz from doing some tests job done well done cal crutchlow and also uh Again, from the commentary box trackside when we were doing it, thank you very much for coming up in the Moto2 races and bringing us some chocolate and some sweets, because that's what he used to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he used to do. He used to, he used to say, why don't, you, uh, why don't you eat the lollipops? Cal, we're commentating. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. Yeah, that wouldn't have crossed his mind. That wouldn't have crossed his mind. I kid you not. <laughs> A chupa chups whilst you're commentating doesn't work but uh yeah it'll be interesting to see how that yamaha partnership uh is yeah. reforged yeah and and you know maverick vinales hinted the other day that um maybe what yamaha need as a test rider is somebody that is a bit gobby and not afraid to tell japanese engineers that their bike's a piece of shit that's cal crutchlow in a nutshell <laughs> you know he's he's somehow endeared himself to japanese engineers at honda by telling them that they're crap at their jobs that's his charm. It only struck me after Valencia 2, when I was out and about, we just didn't see Valentino Rossi. He was he was just invisible after the grid. And it, it really hit me. I went, holy most smoke. Most anonymous race. Uh, where was it? Because we were focusing on the front of the race, the championship. Yeah, <laughs> it, that, was, that was just quite a moment for me. And again, I keep thinking... Yeah. I just hope he doesn't hurt himself or have someone else's accident at this end of his career. A phrase I have is, he's done the difficult bit. Don't hurt yourself doing the doing something. You know, he's had one podium this year. It it, it It's also a, a subconscious Dorna TV editor, director of the television races thing. Do you know what? We're now focused on someone else. And other people, and their names are Juamir, Morbidelli, Quattraro, Rins. You know, it is a changing of the guard, and I hate that expression, but it is just that, <laughs> is it not? Yeah, it is. It is very much that. And and it's it's not even a changing of the guard. I think it's not even a changing of the guard from Rossi. It's almost a changing of the guard from Marquez as well. You know, Valentino Rossi, yesterday was his first race finish in... Six races. It's his first race that finished since September. And really, no one has missed him. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I hope he comes back next year. I hope things are a bit different in Patronus. I think he'll find a bit of a spark. He'll find a bit of a motivation from being in a young team, from having Frankie next to him. I, I genuinely believe he's going to have a better year next year than he had this year, just because it's going to be a bit of a buzz to it, which is great. I hope it works. But um, he's kind of done this amazing thing for the sport. He's almost, almost fallen on his own sword for the greater good of the sport by hanging around long enough that he's become redundant. There's been no moment when Valentino Rossi has said, I'm leaving MotoGP and the viewing figures have taken a huge dip because he's kind of faded away backstage. Well, that's what happens to all sportsmen who hang around. They fade away. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. That's not a criticism because he's still out there having fun, riding a motorbike, doing what he loves. You know, he's having fun, so I'm not going to grudge him that. But, you know, I, I think actually what he's done is is both poetic and for the good of MotoGP in many ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he was scoring points... Just after, sorry, just as we did Hereth 2, and then we got rolling to Bruno, the two Austrias, and the first San Marino. They're good scores there, but he hasn't scored, as you say, until Valencia 2. One finish in seven Grand Prix. He was out for two races because he had coronavirus, but it's it's a big hit. My... I can see where you're coming from. I think falling on his sword is, for me, a strong a strong line. But for me, it's still the stuck record of, I just don't want him to get hurt. It would be the crying shame of all crying shames that he's done all of this. You know, he's been racing since, in Grand Prix, since March 1996. He's been racing in Grand Prix for one year what? longer than yesterday's new world champion has been alive. Which actually I hadn't thought about before, but I think this might be the first world champion uh, to have been born after Valentino's career started. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> As someone pointed out yesterday, with the the news that Crutchlow and Davizioso was not going to be in the grid next year, the second youngest rider on the grid next year will be Alicia Spagaro. At 31, a full 10 years younger than Valentino Rossi. Well, next year, Valentino will be 42 because he's got February birthday. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a decade in it now. Wow, wow. <laughs> I just I just don't want the flame to just disappear and it all runs out of fuel. Uh, I'm not saying that he should have done a Nico Rosberg and crossed the line and a week later said, right, do you know what? I'm the Formula yeah. 1 world champion. I'm stopping. He did that for other reasons, but mm. he did that for Casey's reasons. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but Rossi isn't Casey Stoner. And Rossi is not Casey Stoner. Every race is a home race. He takes home with him. I've said it for many years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. and, and I think you know the the buzz that we saw around all the talk about will he want D Patronus satellite? What's he going to do next year? All the buzz around that proved that he's still insanely popular. You know, we went to Misano this year for one of the very few races that was allowed fans were allowed into everyone was wearing yellow everyone was wearing yellow you know so there's still a lot of buzz about him and uh, i I think the the flame definitely hasn't gone out his passion for racing is still very much there so uh you know we're all good you're absolutely right it is the yellow army there is the factor i have you know people 
my friends of mine, they say, oh, you know, don't forget you introduced me to Valentino. Um, this is not a throwaway comment. I will have forgotten that. But friends of mine say, oh, my goodness me, do you remember when you inter in introduced me? And, <laughs> and it, it just made their day. But Burgess always said it, just going on a slight tangent. Make sure you take your son or grandson to go and see Valentino Rossi ride because then it's just like saying you saw Fangio ride. Oh, uh, uh, race a car, <laughs> Fangio racing car. Or, yeah, of course, at yeah. the moment, Lewis Hamilton. I saw Lewis Hamilton, yeah. and you can say that to your dying day. Um, and it is absolutely the same with, with Valentino. So, uh, But <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm a Damon Hill fan. I, I, I worked on the fringes of the team when uh, he came into Formula One and I just thought he won with grace and with great aplomb. Um, and then when he got to his latter years, it all sort of faded away and he's later said, I almost hated every race of those last few races. And you had to listen to a podcast with yeah. our colleagues on uh, Bring Back V10s through the race. And they said, John Alacy's last race, and he was literally in floods of tears and my, my life has come to an end. You know, you know, everybody's so different, but I just don't want him to get hurt. Okay. Let's go from Yamaha and our slight tangent with Valentino to uh, let's touch on Honda. Uh, Nakagami, uh, Taka Nakagami, nine laps to go. He just made inroads of all inroads into third position and Paul Espargaro and then made a lunge into the, to the last left-hander on the lap as if it was the last lap, <laughs> got it all wrong, crashed, nearly took out Paul Espargaro, but he didn't. So there we go. I'll tell you what, if I was Lucio Cecchinello, I'd, I'd, I'd dock his wages for yesterday. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say this. Unforgivable. He made a pass. He made a maneuver as if it was the last lap. And the people I feel sorry for are the mechanics who haven't been home and maybe haven't seen their family for, for, for weeks or months on end. It was on a plate. What was he doing? Yeah. He, he was being a racer. <laughs> Yeah, that's no, no. Mia's a racer, and he thinks about it. Yeah, true, true. I, I, Taka, <laughs> you know, we, we've seen this before. We saw this in in Aragon as well when he was on pole position. Sometimes, I think sometimes we tend to think that he's Japanese, so he doesn't get flustered. He doesn't, you know, he's very calm and collected, but he can be quite wild. And uh, you know, we've we've seen that a couple of times. Just whenever the moment overcomes him, he does something stupid. He did it the first lap after pole position. He did it yesterday. The good thing is he seems to be learning from these lessons and it's making him better. But, he, you know, he's kind of like this year, he kind of strikes me as someone that suddenly found that they can be fast on a motorbike again. And it's kind of, he's overeager because the speed is there, the podium is there, you know, and, and he almost, he needs to, he needs to get used to being there and being at the front and having that speed, which he hasn't done yet. And I think it will, it'll click. He, you know, maybe the best thing for him at the minute is a winter off, coming back next year, same team, better bike, things a bit more, you know, the ability is there. He just needs to learn how to control it. And it goes back to the old adage of you can't make a slow racer fast, but you can make a fast racer stop crashing. That's, you know, that's where it'll come. It's there. He's got to come back just half a notch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And he'll find how to do it. Talking about Honda, Mark Marquez, uh, 
before the weekend started, confirmed as being out for the rest of the season. What's the update about about an operation or what's going on with Mark? So according to my, according to my sources in the paddock, we've, we've still had no official confirmation of this. Uh, but according to my sources in the paddock, Mark is in real problems with the arm. Um, we thought initially that maybe he had some nerve damage because the, the radio nerve loops itself around the bone that he broke. But it turns out now from, from speaking to a few experts and from hearing a few rumors from people close to the camp and, and sort of tying it all together, that whenever they installed, they installed the first plate, he went out and broke it by trying to ride a motorbike five days later. Very, very stupid decision. But the plate that they initially installed, they kind of overdid it. They, you know, I've got a few friends who work in radiology and orthopedic surgery. They looked at it and thought, that's far too many screws. That's too rigid. That's never going to work. So what has happened is whenever he's got back in the bike, he's kind of ripped all the screws out of the bone. They've then had to put another plate in, which has meant drilling new holes in the bone. And the result right now is that his arm, the, the bone in his arm looks like a bit of Swiss cheese with so many holes in it. And it's just not healing properly. Now, the solution to that, the initial solution to that is going to be to open him up, cut a chunk out of his pelvis and then use that to plug the hole in the arm. From what I've heard, the reason that there's been no official announcement, they were trying a, a course of treatment that they were hoping would fix the problem and would be the last step before surgery. That course of treatment is now coming to an end with no positive results, which is why we're hearing these stories about what needs to happen next, but there's still nothing official. Um, the problem is that that surgery is probably at least a six-month rehab time. And that's not a six months for a normal person. A boner bike racer can cut it down to six weeks. That's a proper six weeks or six months of hard graft. And, you know, so, yeah, potentially the whole start of his season next year is in jeopardy now. Wow. That's arguably the second biggest subject of this podcast. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I hope we haven't seen the last of him because that's... That's a I, I, one possibility. It is. I think it's a faint possibility because from, from what everyone has told me, you know, this is step one in the course of action, this bone graft. There are other more extreme steps that can be taken, but the success rate of the whole process should be pretty much 100%. It's not a nerve injury. It's a bone injury. It's something that can be healed, something that can be fixed, and something that whenever it is fixed will be just as strong as it was before. So I think the end goal here is that is not that we've seen the last of Mark Marquez. I think it's you know it's it is treatable and it is recoverable, but it's a question of how long that's going to take now. Mm -hmm. Well, there will be without doubt the best people, the best facilities, money isn't a problem, insurance will cover, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. You know, that, that's without from, from question. From what I understand, we are talking to, we are talking about the best people in the world now. Uh, this is not, you know, something that's being done by Dr. Mayer anymore. This is consulting with the Mayo Clinic level of, you know, that is actually one of the names that's been thrown around. So that's the level we're operating at now to make sure that this is done perfectly. Well, here we are in the middle of November 2020. We've got to see Mark Marquez back on a motorcycle at some point because the stuff he can do is just... He's Colin McRae, isn't he? He's Colin McRae yeah. on two wheels. It's, it's, 
it's just another it, level. It is, uh, and we 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 pray and hope that he will be back. Uh, he will be back. Um, just finishing off. Um, it also came to light before the Valencia two weekend about Andrea Iannone. Uh, he's now received a four-year ban from the sport after being caught positive for a drugs test after Malaysia 2019. Here is a rider who missed a day of MotoGP testing earlier in 2019 because he was still recovering from cosmetic surgery on his jawline. Do not adjust your sets. You did hear me correctly there. So he then got caught with a bodybuilding steroid, drostanolone, inside him that same year. This is a case that has been through the FIM and the Court of Arbitration for Sport. They are based in Switzerland and they have international members on their board with, for example, attorneys of law, international law, masters of law, the current IOC vice president and a doctor of law. They have recently banned footballers from the sport for life. They fined Man City 10 million euros for their mix-up with sponsorship sources. They banned a swimmer for eight years. They don't mess about. But what they did say is the following, quote, it is down to an athlete to establish on the balance of probabilities that he'd consumed a drug by accident, unquote. But what we've learned last week is that Iannone failed to even establish what type of meat he'd eaten. I'm just very surprised, Simon, at the number of people in sympathy saying this is unfair. I have spent a lot of time looking into the Iannone case because it interests me because uh, so my background, I have a degree in forensic science. This all ties in with what I did before MotoGP. So, I, you know, I understand some of the science and it's quite, I find it quite intriguing. So I've read a lot of Court of Arbitration for Sport case notes from the last five or six years of similar cases to Iannone. And generally the tone taken by all of them is, what's the best way to word this? It's kind of, it's it's that tone that a teacher takes whenever they're not angry with you, they're just disappointed. There's a degree of sympathy. And then, you know, the sort of the overall tone is, you silly boy, why did you do this? The tone with the Iannone report is somewhere between shock, incredulity, and offended at how stupid a defense he decided he could bring in front of an organization, this professional, because his case was, I could have done better. Whoever fleeced him for legal advice in preparing that case, the, the smartest people in Italy because they they took him to the cleaners because he presented nothing that proved his case. You know, we're looking at a guy here who was told you need to prove the chain of evidence or you at least need to try to prove the chain of evidence of where this contaminated meat came from, which other athletes in the past have done by, say, going to the restaurant, asking for a sample of the meat, asking for the, you know, where they get their food supplies from, tracing it all back, etc., etc. Contador. That's what he did. Exactly. He found the butcher that provided the restaurant with the steak. And the butcher's brother raised the cattle and they traced it all back. Ian Oney emailed the Samasama Hotel in 
Kuala Lumpur next to the circuit where we've all stayed many, many times. I, it's all in the report, so we're, we're not in treacherous legal ground here. It says it's the Sama Sama. He emailed the Sama Sama to ask for proof of where they got their meat without giving any context about doping or anything like this on the 27th of July, which is three months after he'd already been found guilty by the FIM court. I think that says it all. I think that says it all. I think that says it all. You know, they, they presented they presented a receipt that proved that he'd eaten at the hotel. And the judge said, but you were on track on this day. And this is a receipt for lunch. And he only, he only said, oh, it must have been my girlfriend's then. You know, that's the level of defense presented here. He deserves everything he gets. It doesn't even matter anymore to me whether or not he's guilty, you know, whether it was accidental or not. Because if you're so unprepared to present a defense, then you're either guilty or too bloody stupid to deserve any sympathy. I was very surprised at the number of people in the paddocks with, you know, yeah. Anyway, anyway, never mind. We, well, I think, uh, I think we've done that. What we've got to remember is we've got a brand new MotoGP world champion in the shape of Juan Mir. And after those words that he said after Valencia won, uh, you know, if I win this championship, it'll be great. If I don't win this championship, I'll still be great. There are people with bigger problems in the outside world with the virus and paying their rent and such like. He has just gone absolutely to the center of the hearts of so many sports fans, not even MotoGP fans, the world over. What a erudite, clever, mature young man the sport has got. And I'll tell you what, we don't have to do it well, don't we? We, we bounce from Valentino Rossi to uh, the talent of Lorenzo, to the talent of Stoner, to the talent of Marquez. And now we've got Juan Mir. It's just wonderful. And let's not forget as well that yesterday's race winner is... The only guy in MotoGP that has used his platform this year to say, let's not be racist to each other. Let's be cool to each other. You know, we have a new breed of rider who are all of those things, all of those qualities that you've just listed. It's, you know, it's awesome. It is awesome. What a season we have had, but actually with still one race to go at a racetrack we've never been to before, it's like a finished rally stage with the amount of crests on it and blind corners on it. It's going to be absolutely gloves off. There's no championship to go for. It's who's going to be the best man come the checkered flag. What a Portuguese weekend we have in store. I'm going to be glued. Well, I mean... It's going to be the most interest there's ever been in a MotoGP FP1 session just to see who can get the most air. That's not something you're supposed to be, supposed to be saying about a MotoGP race, is it? <laughs> MotoGP goes to Cadwell in the sun. <laughs> That's what it's going to be like. So oh, tune in me. after <laughs> Porto Mayo uh, next week for, uh, for our next podcast with myself, Toby Moody, and Simon Patterson at Toby Moody or at Denkmit. Do keep in touch with at we are the race. Go to the-race.com for all of your Formula One news and MotoGP news between now and that Portuguese weekend. Do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you for joining us. And once more, congratulations to Juan Mir, 2020 MotoGP World Champion. <laughs>